Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the IGM Financial Second Quarter 2021 Earnings Results Call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Keith Potter, Senior Vice President Finance. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone, and welcome to IGM Financial's 2021 second quarter earnings call. Joining me on the call today are James O'Sullivan, President and CEO of IGM Financial, Damon Murchison, President and CEO of IG Wealth Management, Barry McInerney, President and CEO of McKenzie Investments, and Luke Gould, Executive Vice President and CFO of IGM Financial. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to our cautions concerning forward-looking statements on slide three of the presentation. Slide four summarizes our non-IFRS financial measures used in the material. And on slide five, we provide a list of documents that are available to the public on our website related to the second quarter results for IGM Financial. And with that, I'll turn over the call to James. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm going to start on slide seven. Um, the second quarter was another uh, record-setting quarter for IGM. Uh, we achieved record AUM&A in the quarter of $262 billion, up 5.4% in the quarter. We also achieved record high investment fund net flows of $1.9 billion and total net flows of $2.5 billion, which include record highs for both IG Wealth and McKenzie. But I'm most pleased with earnings per share of 99 cents, which is the highest EPS for any quarter in the company's history, and up a full 29% from last year. Another notable item in the quarter is that IGM was recognized by Corporate Knights once again as one of the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada. Finally, with our record earnings, and growing capital position, we're actively looking at options to redeploy capital. Turning to slide eight on investment returns, we continue to see strong equity market increases across major indices and slight gains in fixed income. Overall, this had a positive impact for IGM clients, with average client investment returns of 4.5% in the second quarter and 7.2% year-to-date, June 30th, 2021. Turning to slide nine, Q2 long-term mutual fund net sales were 27.9 billion for the total industry and 13.4 billion for the industry asset management peers. Following a record first quarter, this is the best fund industry second quarter net sales in Canadian history. Turning to slide 10 on IGM's uh, results for the second quarter, 
average AUM&A of $255.4 billion increased $74 billion, or 40.8% year-over-year, including approximately $30 billion related to the acquisition of GLC and GreenChip, which closed in December of last year. As I mentioned, second quarter EPS of $0.99 is an all-time record high. Slide 11 now highlights earnings contributions from each of our segments, where we've brought our disclosures down to the net earnings line as announced in March. IGM's year-over-year increase in net earnings was driven by strong results across all of our reporting segments. Finally, slide 12 demonstrates the record Q2 results at both IG Wealth Management and McKenzie, and the continued momentum that Damon and Barry will speak to in greater detail. So over to you, Damon. Great. Thank you, James, and good morning, everyone. Turning to slide 14 to the IG Wealth Management second quarter highlights, AOA reached a new all-time high of $112.2 billion dollars increasing 4.9% during the quarter, driven by record-breaking Q2 net inflows of $670 million and client investment returns of 4.2%. Gross flows of $3.2 billion were also a new record for the second quarter. Net sales into IGM products were $397 million during the quarter, which represented a half-billion-dollar improvement relative to last year. July was another very strong month, with record-high net inflows of $348 million and net sales into IGM managed products of $210 million. This represented the ninth consecutive month of positive net sales into IGM products and the 10th consecutive month of positive AUA net flows. Underlying these strong results is an acceleration of our success in further penetrating the high net worth and mass affluent client segments. We are now seeing significant positive impact from our business transformation efforts over the last few years on both our consultant and client experience. I'll speak to more to each of these themes on the coming slides. Turning to slide 15, you can see the very strong results through the first seven months of the year, including July's record net inflows of 348 million. The 12-month trailing line chart on the right demonstrates the significant momentum in our total net flows and net sales into IGM products, both of which have been accelerating over the past four months relative to Q1 of this year. Next, moving to slide 16, you can see our Q2 record high gross inflows were nearly up, or up nearly 70% year over year. On the line chart, you see our trailing 12-month net sales rate has reached 2.1%. We expect to provide a wealth management-based market share benchmark in the near future that will include the full service broker, the independent planner, and the branch advice channels. I look forward to sharing more information with you on this new metric on future calls. Our client net inflows are broken down in more details on the net flows table, where you can see the significant improvement in net sales into IG solutions, as well as continued use of the McKenzie funds on our approved list. Total inflows into IGM products were $397 million. Turning to slide 17, similar to last quarter, I'll speak to the mechanics at play in our AUA growth and net flows by investment product category. Starting with the second column on the left, you can see that our Q2 net inflows of $670 million were primarily made up of $258 million of cash in short-term savings and $399 million of third-party in-kind transfers from other dealers. 
The third column shows a significant outflow from these categories that resulted in net sales into IG Managed Solutions and McKenzie funds totaling $397 million. Our success acquiring new client relationships, increasing our share of wallet with existing clients, and our recruiting ex experienced industry advisors will continue to drive in-kind transfers of third-party fund securities and cash from other dealers. We also expect flows into our investment solutions to continue as our consultants work with their clients to provide comprehensive financial planning and leverage the benefits of utilizing well-constructed managed solutions. On slide 18, you'll see one of our key KPIs, the productivity of our consultant network, which continues to grow. We've selected a few key initiatives that we attribute the increased productivity to, each of which magnifies and builds upon one another. In 2017, we provided more flexibility to our clients by eliminating the DSC purchase option and significantly tightened our recruiting standards, gearing our business towards more experience. Our National Service Center was launched with a focus on delivering a consistent experience to our clients with somewhat less complex needs, allowing our consultants to direct more of their time and energy towards servicing and attracting clients with more sophisticated and complex financial needs. Related to this point, we launched our new advisor desktop powered by Salesforce to help drive efficiencies as well as identify opportunities for our consultants to engage their clients and prospects. We have also made ongoing investment product and pricing enhancements, bringing together the best asset classes and asset managers to build a truly unique offering for our clients making us more competitive in the mass affluent and high net worth marketplace. And finally, we're seeing significant benefits in both our consultant and client experience through investments in our next generation financial planning tool, the IG Living Plan, our online client portal, and our digital forums. Next, I'll highlight two key proof points showing the impact of these investments are having on our success. The first is on slide 19, which details our new client acquisition efforts. In Q2, we had $456 million in gross and net inflows from newly acquired clients with over $500,000. This is more than a five-fold increase over the past five years and over double last year's result. On the right-hand chart, you can see the trailing 12-month flows from newly acquired clients where we have an increased focus on massive fluid and high net worth and a decreased focus on the mass market. You can see while there was a brief pause related to COVID, by mid-August, our consultants and our business had adapted to the pandemic, and our momentum has accelerated since that time. We have proven that we can source, recruit, and onboard massive, fluent, and high net worth clients in this virtual environment. The second proof point is on slide 20, and it's centered around the annual investment executive dealer report card, which was published in June of this year. The report is based on interviews with over 500 financial advisors, spanning 11 dealer firms across the country with a focus on programs and support offered by their respective firms. In the 2001 edition of this report, IG Wealth Management continued to demonstrate leading capabilities in all of the financial planning metrics, as well as ongoing training programs, which are a critical part of our value proposition and our financial planning edge. We also saw the positive impact of our transformation initiatives shine through in our scores on technology, tools, and product offering, with all of these scores increasing significantly over the last three years. While there's a lot of excitement and momentum at IG right now, it's important to remember that we are still in the fourth year of a five-year transformation, 
and we have significantly more upside as we continue to execute and elevate our consultant and client experience. While we're happy to see our efforts be reflected in this independent third-party report, the daily vote of confidence from our employees, our consultants, our clients, and the growing number of experienced industry recruits who are choosing to build their business with IG is far more important to us. So now I'll turn it over to Barry McInerney. Thank you very much, Damon, and good morning, everyone. I'll begin my comments on McKenzie's Q2 results on slide 22. We ended the quarter with a new record high total AUM of $201.7 billion, driven by strong capital market returns and net sales of $1.9 billion. Retail remains the key driver of our record investment fund net sales of $1.4 billion during Q2. This marks our 19th consecutive quarter of positive retail investment fund net sales. McKenzie's momentum continues to be broad-based for both mutual funds and ETFs across all major asset classes and categories. As a result, we've sustained our market share gains from competitors in the Canadian retail channel. And our institutional business contributed positively to net sales of approximately 500 million, including sub-advisory, separately managed accounts and institutional mutual fund sales. This quarter, we are pleased to announce several planned new fund launches at McKenzie that together focus on sustainable investing, tax-efficient strategies, and utilize our strategic partnerships to broaden both our product depth and distribution reach. Focusing on sustainability, we have created a new investment boutique called Better World that will further expand our capabilities in this space. We launched two sustainable investing products earlier this year and plan to bring more to market this fall. We also launched the McKenzie Tax Managed Global Equity Fund, are launching a, the McKenzie China AMC All China Bond Fund, and in partnership with Wealthsimple, launched a Sharia compliant ETF. I'll also highlight the performance of our two strategic investments focused on asset management, Northleaf and China AMC, on a coming slide. These businesses support two important growth catalysts for McKenzie. Slide 23 highlights our investment fund flows, which include adjustments for large fund allocation changes that can impact the comparability of results over time. The charts on the left demonstrate the consistently strong year-to-date gross and net sales over various time periods. Our momentum has continued into July with record high investment fund net sales of $420 million during the month and $6.8 billion on a 12-month trailing basis. Slide 24 summarizes McKenzie's Q2 2021 operating results. Total mutual fund gross sales of $3 billion were up 20% year-over-year, driven by a 55% increase in retail gross sales. McKenzie continues to gain market share as demonstrated by our long-term investment fund net sales rate, which was 10% at the end of June. And in terms of Morningstar ratings, 47% of McKenzie's AUM were in four- or five-star rated funds, and 14 of our top 20 funds are rated four or five stars for Series F. Slide 25 shows our retail net sales and how investment performance looks across our investment boutiques. We continue to see strong overall performance in our growth-oriented boutiques, while our Kundal value and global quantitative teams have delivered strong outperformance year-to-date. In terms of net sales, a wide range of boutiques contributed positively this quarter, including our equity, fixed income, and multi-asset teams, as well as our third-party managers, which includes China AMC. 
Similar to last quarter, slide 26 highlights the growth catalysts that are reshaping the global asset management industry. We've highlighted three of the five themes, alternatives, ETFs, and China. Northleaf has experienced continued exceptional fundraising results at $1.7 billion during the second quarter alone. We also continue to see synergies play out with our core businesses and our sister company, Great West Life Co., where we have strengthened the high net worth offerings at IG using Northleaf private market solutions, launched a private credit fund at McKenzie with more fund launches to come, and utilized a broad array of Northleaf solutions as a preferred partner for Great West Life's strategy to increase their balance sheet allocation to private markets. Briefly on our ETF platform, we exceeded the $10 billion AUN mark a short five years after launching our first ETF. We're all very proud of this important milestone. I'll also take this opportunity to highlight our emphasis and achievements on the important China theme. As a reminder, we have an on-the-ground presence in this market with our McKinsey Beijing office, our Hong Kong-based Asia investing boutique, and an important partnership and 13.9% equity interest in a Chinese asset management industry leader, China AMC. Continuing on slide 27, the growth in the Chinese mutual fund industry has remained robust, with long-term mutual funds growing 46% over the last 12 months. Net sales contributes approximately 62% of this growth, with a net sales rate of roughly 23% over the past year. Consensus expectation is that industry AUM will continue to grow at a mid to upper teen CAGR over the long term, five years out and beyond. As we highlighted about a year ago, China AMC is a consistent top contender across all major asset classes within the Chinese asset management industry. The firm ranks fourth overall in terms of long-term mutual fund assets under management as presented on the right. And turning to slide 28, China AMC is also one of the most diversified asset management companies in China by distribution channel and investment management capabilities. It is noteworthy that we are seeing significant growth in long-term mutual funds, which grew 41% since June of last year. The company has also experienced strong growth in money market funds and its institutional business over the past two years. We are very encouraged by the strong relationships we have with China AMC and its controlling shareholder, Citic Securities, and pleased we have demonstrated some of the synergies between our two firms with the new $680 million subadvisory mandate awarded to McKinsey in June. Here in Canada, McKinsey is offering unique solutions to address the growing need for Canadian retail investors to gain exposure to the Chinese capital markets, including our five-star rated China equity fund subadvised by China AMC and the upcoming launch of the McKinsey China AMC All China Bond Fund, which will be available later this year. Benefiting from our close relationship with China AMC, we're positioning McKinsey as a thought leader on the evolving Chinese market and working with retail financial advisors as they search for the best ways to incorporate Chinese assets into their clients' portfolios. Notwithstanding the recent government engagement with specific economic sectors, our conviction on the mid to long-term prospects for the Chinese markets and our position in China AMC is undiminished. I'll now turn the call over to Luke. Great. Thanks, Greg. Good morning, everyone. So turning to slide 30, I highlight, once again, the solid growth in AUM&A during the quarter. We ended at $262 billion, up 5.4%, driven by strong investment returns of 4.4%, as well as net flows of $2.5 billion, which would represent an annualized rate of 4% of assets. We also published our July results yesterday, and so far, Q3 
has been good with AUMNA up another 1.2% to $265 billion and record high investment fund net flows of $600 million. Turn to page 31. You can see the last five quarters of IGM's EBIT and margins. On the right, I'd remind that we closed the acquisition of GLC on January 1st, 2021, and this explains the change in revenue and expense rates. I'd also comment it was a very clean and solid quarter with gross and net revenue rates on the top right consistent with Q1's level. Cost per unit declined as a result of seasonality expenses and economies of scale, and the EBIT margin at 45 basis points is up from that Q1. Turn to page 32, you can see IGM's consolidated income statement with earnings of $237 million or $0.99 cents per share, up 29% from last year and 17% from Q1. The only comment I'd have on this slide is to reaffirm our commitment to expense management. You can see in point two that for operations and support expenses for 2021, our guidance remains unchanged, and you can find this detail in appendix slide 43. As a result of the strength in McKenzie's retail sales, we're revising our guidance on McKenzie wholesaling commissions, which are found within the business development line, and I'm going to review this in a couple of slides. Turn to page 33. You can see IG Wealth key revenue and expense lines on the right presented as annualized basis points of their respective driver. You'll see advisory fees at 104.2 basis points are relatively unchanged relative to Q1. Continued migration of high net worth clientele was partially offset by a greater share of assets being subject to advisory fees as more money was put to work. And I remind we don't charge advisory fees on, uh, on cash and cash substitutes like deposits, money market fund, high interest savings accounts, and, and among other assets. I'd also uh, r- remind we expect there'll be continued declines in this line over the next few quarters from growth in the share of our assets with high net worth clients. And uh, I'd reconfirm our guidance that you should expect reductions of about 0.6 to 0.8 basis points in this line in each of the next few quarters, depending upon how that migration and success in high net worth goes. I'd also point out that asset-based compensation is about 48 basis points, and we'd expect to be at or very near this level over the coming quarters. Turn to page 34, you can see IG's income statement. At the bottom, net earnings of 130.4 million, we're up 34% from last year and 18% from Q1. And as you can see in point one on the right, we've reconfirmed our full year expense guidance for IG. Turn to page 35, you can see the composition of McKinsey's AUM on the left, and you can see the annualized net revenue rates on the right. Again, I remind that we had the GLC acquisition on January 1st, and you can see the impact that this had on each of these two charts. I'd also comment on the chart on the right, where you can see McKinsey's net revenue rate was strong in the quarter, up a basis point, and this was supported by continued growth in retail and continued growth in uh, inequity and balance mandates. Turn to page 36, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this slide that we've been sharing with you to help you understand retail sales results and how our business development expenses will behave across different variability um, or, or because of different variability in the, in the wholesaling commissions to gross and net sales levels. On the left chart, you can see the retail mutual fund sales trend. And I note in the light blue line, which is the bigger, biggest driver of our wholesaling at commissions, we've now crossed through the $4 billion mark on, on, on retail mutual fund net sales. In the middle chart, you can see that this has been driven by year-over-year improvements in gross sales of over 50% during each of the last three quarters. And if you go to the table right below the middle chart, you'll see that we've circled business development expenses in the second quarter of 2021 of $25.1 million, and that this is a significant increase over Q1 of $5 million. 
The key part of this increase is we've adjusted our accrual to reflect an expected full-year retail mutual fund net sales result of $5 billion based upon the strength that we've seen in McKinsey's retail business in the second quarter. And you can see in the chart on the left that this is where we're, where we're going with that 12-month trailing trend right now. On the right, you can see how full-year expenses will respond to different sales levels. And, and again, we have revised our guidance for this line to reflect $5 billion. And I'd also remind our previous uh, guidance and our previous accrual had been to a full-year net sales result of $2.5 billion. I think these sensitivities on the right give good insight into how ex the expense will change based upon different full-year sales possibilities. And uh, I'd also guide that, that had we been closer to our current uh, level of $4 billion, we would have had an extra $2 million of, uh, of, of earnings this quarter because uh, our accrual would have been lower. So, again, we have marked it to $5 billion, and, and that is where we're trending. Going to page 37, you can see McKinsey's earnings during the quarter were $56.5 million, up 54% from last year and 18% from Q1. You can see we've called out the increased business development expense accrual that I described on the last slide. And on point two, we've also reconfirmed our full-year guidance for McKinsey's operations and support expenses. Moving to page 38 and building on various comments, we've profiled some of the results of China Asset Management. On the left, we showcase the strong growth in AUM reviewed earlier by Barry. In the middle, you can see China MC's earnings. And on the right is iGEM's share of these earnings expressed in millions of Canadian dollars. A few quick comments I'd make on this slide. First, you can see on the left, there's been meaningful growth in long-term mutual funds at the bottom left. And in particular, I'd highlight actively managed equity and balance funds have been selling very well in, in, for China MC in their, in their domestic market. Year, year over year, you'll see earnings are up by 47%. And I, I would, would highlight during each of Q2 2021 and Q2 2020, there was just over $1 million in contribution from seed capital mark to market. There was no such mark in Q1 2021, and this represented part of the increase in earnings relative to Q1. And at the bottom right, we've reminded the company pays an annual dividend. You can see our dividend doubled this year as a result of the strong growth in earnings combined with an increase in the dividend payout rate. Moving to page 39, we've highlighted the earnings growth rate of the different segments and our underlying investments. In the first point, we've highlighted that the secondary transaction we did in Well Simple closed during the quarter, and we received pre-tax proceeds of just under $300 million. And at the bottom, we've got a pull-out table where we've reminded that our strategic investments have a value of, of over $4 billion. We presented the trading value of our 4% stake in Great West Life Co. of $1.37 billion based upon their, their close a few days ago. China AMC of $916 million reflects our entry PE multiple of 17.5 times applied to consensus earnings estimates for 2021. And I'd note that these uh, earnings estimates are feeling conservative. Northleaf of 200 million reflects our purchase price a few months ago and is very reviewed. Business development has been very strong and ahead of our expectations. And Wealth Simple reflects the equity fundraising valuation from a few weeks ago. As James indicated, the second column from the right shows that we have excess capital of just under $600 million at the end of June. And lastly, on page 40, we presented analyst consensus 2021 earnings estimates by component, and these are the estimates just before we published these the Q2 results. We've then taken in the right column our share price of $44 on July 30th, and we've calculated an implied PE multiple for each of IG and McKinsey that results when one makes the specified value assumptions for each of our strategic investments. In the bottom row, 
we compared this resultant PE of about 7.8 times to the average PE for global wealth managers in the case of IG and for global asset managers in the case of McKinsey. And I'd highlight when you look at those global peers, these are the averages and those peers that have higher earnings growth are trading multiples that are higher than this. I just close my remarks by saying we've got off a lot of operating leverage in these businesses, a lot of momentum in the businesses, operating results as well as the earnings. And as James mentioned at the beginning, we're focused on driving continued earnings growth and we look forward to future quarters. That concludes my comments. I'll turn it over for questions, Sashi. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The first question is from Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, good morning. Um, my first question was was on the dividend. Um, I think the payout ratio was about 57% in Q2. And if you take a look at the first half, like I think it was closer to 62%. So just was curious about, um, you know, what, what the board's view was on why the dividend was maintained this quarter and also any thoughts that, assuming the markets remain constructive um, this quarter, kind of the likelihood that, that we might see a dividend increase uh, when you report Q3 results? Sure. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeff. Well, go uh, ahead, James. Go ahead. No, Luke, go ahead. Oh, uh, thanks, uh, James. I was just going to remind Jeff, um, when you look at earnings, the, the payout rate was about 70% of cash earnings. And so I'd remind we, uh, we equity account for our investments in China and, and Great West Life Co. And, uh, and, and we we, we then obviously receive the dividends uh, from them. So that's part of the reconciliation between reported earnings and cash earnings. We also uh, pay, pay sales commissions, and, and, we, and we, we capitalize and amortize a component. So, so our, our lens, first and foremost, is on cash earnings. We're about 70%, but, but as you highlight, our earnings are growing at, at, at a healthier rate, and we will be reevaluating the dividend on an ongoing basis. I'd also highlight we, we will be uh, evaluating share buybacks as well as other capital deployment opportunities to, to increase our earnings and create shareholder value. Yeah, and Jeff, I would just add, it's James speaking, that uh, you know I'd like to see us get further through 2021 and frankly have start to have some line of sight on 2022 as we you know take this conversation and this decision to our board sometime in the fall. Okay, thanks. And just my other question was on IG Wealth. Um, given the business has evolved over the years to having much more of a, I would say, a comprehensive uh, full-service platform and, and, and the greater capabilities along with that, um, when when you bring in a new client and they've got you know X amount of client assets um, in things like stocks or non-IG Wealth mutual funds ETFs, you know those sorts of things. Is the goal to migrate, you know, most or all of it into IG Wealth uh, mutual fund product, assuming it's consistent with their financial plan? And, and if so, 
how long does this transition kind of take to migrate those assets over? Yes, yeah, it's, it's Damien here. So, <clears throat> yeah, when, when we bring in a new client and they have individual securities or, or third-party assets, ultimately what's going to drive those decisions is, is what's in best interest of, of the client. And, and you mentioned it in terms of, uh, of saying, you know, as long as you execute the financial plan, then, then, then we're comfortable because the financial plan ultimately is going to determine where, how the client should, should be invested. Generally speaking, though, because we are focused on, on more massive and high net worth clients, you're dealing with larger accounts and you're dealing with a lot of non-registered accounts. So when you're dealing with non-registered accounts, a lot of times you're dealing with embedded capital gains. So a lot of times it takes a little bit longer for any transition to take place. And those transitions generally would take place more than, more than not towards the end of the year um, in, in a lot of situations for, for, for non-registered. So in terms of, of guidance that I would provide, I would say, you know, our advisors are always focused on, on doing what's in the best interest of their client. There is significant advantages of leveraging our well-constructed managed solutions because it frees them up to spend time with the clients and focus on the planning and solving complex issues. And where that, where that makes sense for the client, then that's exactly what we do. Okay, great. Thank you very much. The next question is from Gary Ho from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning. First question is for, for James, just on the capital redeployment opportunities. Uh, it would be a two-part question. You know, of the $583 million of unallocated capital, you know, how much would you um, typically want to hold back and what portion is truly unencumbered? And then if you can elaborate on the potential M&A angle, anything that's missing on the IGM uh, product shelf that would be of interest um, from an M&A standpoint or any other strategic investments you'd be looking at. Sorry, thanks, Gary. Um, well, look, with respect to um, the surplus capital, it is, we, we call it unallocated capital. It's it's truly surplus. Um, so there is a set-aside for next quarter's uh, dividend. So there's a, there's a degree of conservatism uh, embedded in our definition of unallocated capital that I think is important to bear in mind. So, you know, in theory, um, given how we calculate unallocated capital, uh, we could choose to uh, deploy it all. Uh, bearing in mind uh, that we, we have, I would describe as, you know, a significant amount of uh, senior debt capacity uh, if we ever chose to, to exercise that as well. So, um, you know, that's, uh, I, I, I view the full almost 600 as, as potentially capital that we can do something good with for our shareholders. Um, to your question on M&A, um, Gary, I'd say this. Um, we, if the world is reflating, if market confidence hangs together here, we could be in for an active uh, M&A environment in both wealth management uh, and asset management. And uh, we would be interested in participating sensibly uh, uh, in that environment. So when I think about wealth management, um, you know, I think I've said before, and I'll, I'll reiterate that we're particularly interested in the high net worth and ultra high net worth segments uh, in Canada. Uh, there's a resiliency and a stability, I would say, to, to wealth earnings that we think is uh, is very strong and very appealing. But 
obviously it would have to make sense. And on asset management, you know, we view that as, as inherently a global business. So, you know, strengthening capabilities where it, uh, uh, where it made sense. Uh, Barry has spoken in the past about his five growth levers, and he always wants to have a, you know, a, a, a really good category of, uh, of growth levers that are, that are forward-looking and put us on our front foot. So that's potentially of interest, too. I think maybe, Gary, the most important thing I can say um, uh, to you is this. Um, this management team genuinely believes that uh, the path to a higher share price for IGM is through higher earnings. So that's our guidepost. That's our North Star as we think about kind of our strong financial position, as we think about surplus capital. We're very mindful uh, that uh, to improve the share price over time, we have to grow earnings. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for the color. Uh, second question, um, you for Barry. Just want to dig into the green chip and North Leaf uh, a little bit. Uh, another strong net inflows at green chip. You know, what's the capacity on that platform? How big can that grow? And then on the North Leaf side. Of the 1.7 billion in commitment, uh, can you maybe quantify uh, how much of that was IG uh, and Great West? Well, I, yeah, thanks, Gary. It's, it's Gary. Uh, yeah, Greenship is continues to sell very well, and as you know, there's, uh, there's really a strong interest. We think this is sustainable interest in Canadian retail and global institutional, by the way, in the area of uh, thematic environmental global equity offerings. Um, and uh, you know, we actually have. Uh, started down the path of also looking for select opportunities for Greenship institutionally, particularly outside of, of Canada, where they themselves, before being acquired by us, had for over a decade uh, had good dialogues with uh, institutional consultants and um, institutional investors, but maybe some hesitancy of them to give money to such a small firm. And now, of course, being part of McKenzie, uh, we're seeing those clients coming in. We, we picked up six or seven, by the way, about, you know, about five million on average each, smaller accounts. But, uh, so uh, it's going to sell well going forward, both retail and institutional. Still bringing in three, four million dollars a day in Canadian retail. Capacity is fine. Um, the, it is an all-cap strategy. Uh, it's actually surprisingly, it's in a growth area, but it's a value style. <laughs> um, bit of a dichotomy there. But the green ship uh, style is all-cap. And um, at times, if they're still focused with value on small to mid, of course, they got uh, they might have to watch their capacity a few years out. But they. They basically are all cap, and right now they're focusing all, on all capitalization, the entire capitalization spectrum. So no capacity constraints at all. In fact, similar to what we did with Phil Toller's growth team last year, um, where we launched a second version of his U.S. growth SMID cap to more of a larger capitalization pure mid cap, uh, we are, are the green ship balanced fund that we launched embedded in that on the equity side is a larger cap version of green ships. So we've got uh, lots of capacity. Lots of runway there, so we're very pleased to, to make that um, that second flavor, so to speak, come, come to life. Northleaf, um, the uh, you know again that 1.7, that 1.7 billion, about 400 million, is from IG and um, Great West Life, so well over billion uh, billion three ish is external. And the, what we're very pleased with as well, and obviously we're, we dialogue with them on a, on a regular basis, James and Luke and myself. Is that the, the the new wins are are some from existing clients in Canada institutional, uh, and just shows you the confidence they have. This is an incredible firm, 
and uh, they have most of their clients have multiple mandates with Northleaf. So the new wins are from existing clients in Canada, um, some new clients in Canada, some new institutional clients outside of Canada, which is uh, is part of their strategy to uh, more globalize their distribution. And it's across all three of their major categories and strategies: uh, private credit, private equity, and infrastructure. So really a a broad array of sales uh, fundraising last quarter, 1.7 billion. Again, that's quite outstanding given their total AUM base of 15 billion. And uh, we're, we continue to expect exciting things from them in the, in the quarters to come. Perfect, thanks, thanks, Barry. And then last question, Luke, uh, just on the updated expense guidance. I think one of the bigger changes, as you mentioned, is the BizDev expense at uh, at McKenzie. And you're now assuming retail mutual fund net sales of five billion, um, and I know that's based on you know solid McKinsey specific performance and sales efforts, but also industry tailwinds. You know, if the five billion is the bogey for 2021, can you maybe give us a glimpse of how slide 36 might look for 2022 if net flows stays flat or perhaps maybe um, decline a little bit? That's a great question, Gary, and it's, it's funny Barry might have said in his remarks. And you'll remember for a few, a few quarters ago, we, we raised the bar every year. So, so we, we actually haven't set uh, our, our, uh, our bar for 2022 uh, yet. Uh, we will be. Um, but, but that's what you could expect is if things continue at these levels, we, we'd, we'd probably end up with a, uh, with a 2022 forecast that looked very much like our, our, our original 2021 guidance. So, so quite a bit south of, uh, of where we've actually uh, marked the expense to uh, for this year. So, so sorry. So sorry. If the net flows do come off versus the five billion, should we see that line, the expense line, decline as well? Yeah, I'd say two things, Gary. So, so one, during this period, uh, if we're if we're lower than five billion dollars, then then we'll obviously be lower than the guidance set out on page thirty-six on the right, where we've given full year guidance of ninety-five point nine million dollars. If if that that target is hit. Then, if we were to, we, we we would expect to reset the bar, and where we're sitting today, what that would mean is if we continued to expect five billion dollars again in 2022, the expense would be lower than than 2021's level. We haven't set how much lower, uh, but but you could expect if you look at this at slide 36, something closer to the 81 to 84 million dollar range um, as we reset things higher. And again, we reset every year based upon our expectation, but that is our theme, is the bar does get raised every year. And we do set it in the context of, of what we're expecting from the industry and from ourselves at the time. Got it. Okay, that, that's, that's helpful. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. The next question is from Graham Riding from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, maybe I'll just start with uh, with IPC. There was a bit of change in uh, in management there recently, and it seems to be um, one area of your business that's probably lagging in terms of growth relative to your other areas. So, what's the what's the plan there, and and uh, in terms of trying to get it, uh, I guess, the performance better and more in line with the rest of your, rest of your uh, your businesses? Yeah, sure. Well, good morning. Um... So, uh, yeah, Chris Reynolds, one of the founders of, uh, of IPC, is now the uh, executive chair of IPC. And in that role, uh, Chris is going to be very, very focused on advisor recruitment, advisor retention, as well as um, 
as well as growing the business and kind of developing kind of what I'll call uh, uh, new industrial models or new economic models for the business. So he's going to be active uh, purchasing practices. Um, he's uh, he's uh, already embarked on uh, something we call uh, uh, the corporate branch model, uh, where we buy books of business and convert those books of businesses to a salary plus bonus model. So he's going to be very involved in the in the evolution of the business as well as generally with uh, advisor recruiting, advisor retention. It's a it's a real strength of his. Uh, Blaine Shuchuk, of course, moves over as president and CEO of IPC. Uh, Blaine is a long-standing uh, uh, IGM uh, officer and employee, and he's going to be focused on the operations. And and uh, you know we have uh, we have confidence in the future of that uh, of that business. We quite like it now. As it sits here today, I it's, I think it's important to say that IPC uh, represents uh, less than two percent of our earnings. I think it earned about $15 million last year. But what I find appealing about it is it, it's got $30 billion of assets under administration, and it's a, it's a very important participant in that, uh, in that independent space. And so we think we can uh, do a, a fair bit with it uh, over, the, over the coming years. What has impacted uh, performance recently um, is uh, the council product, uh, the council mutual fund product. That has not performed as well as uh, as we would have liked, and so I can assure you that uh, one of the first things Blaine is focused on is uh, is addressing that. I'd also point out that we're um, acknowledged that advisor recruitment um, uh, can be lumpy. Now it's always going to be lumpy, Graham. That's that's not going to change. I think that's the nature of that. Uh, but I did notice last night, uh, as we put out the July results, that uh, July was uh, July was a good month for for IPC. Forty-five million dollars of net flows, including fifteen million dollars of uh, of uh, IGM product. So you add it all up. There's 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 work to do to be sure. Uh, but uh, we've got Chris Reynolds in a great role. We've got Blaine in a great role. We've got plans for the business as the industry evolves and. Uh, I think in the fullness of time, you're going to see IPC do a lot more than 2% of our earnings. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Damon, maybe I'll jump to you. You mentioned that you're in the fourth year of your uh, five-year roadmap at IG. Can you just give us some context on what's left in terms of important sort of initiatives to roll out? Yeah, we are going to continue to, to work on uh, on automation. It's something that um, that we've made significant progress uh, with, and it's something that we're we're looking to finish up uh, this year, uh, particularly you know suited towards the new client focus reforms. Uh, the new client focus reforms really move everything from from post trade to pre trade, and you're trying to to navigate uh, you know your client with you know your product with suitability. And the thing that we've done, which, which I'm so excited about, is that we've embedded compliance in the, in the business process. Um, so through, through the digitalization and, and process automation, we are going to be able to free up our advisors and ensure that we're putting our best foot forward as it relates to the client focus reforms. We, I firmly believe that we're going to have a competitive advantage relative to the rest of the street in terms of what we're doing uh, there. And then broader uh, we're focused on automation for our clients and for our operational unit. We're focused on making sure that we 
um, elevate our client uh, contact center and our client service department. And then we're going to transfer our infrastructure to, to the cloud. And a lot of that is going to take place, is planned to take place next year. Okay, perfect. And then maybe one more just uh, for you, Barry. Um, you know, fund sales have obviously been ex uh, very strong. We, we have seen some deterioration in your overall fund performance over like the more recent one-year period versus your, you know, your three- and five-year periods. Does any concern on your part around you know, fund per performance potentially impacting your sales momentum or, or any, any color or contacts, contacts would be appreciated? Sure. Thanks, Graham. A good question. No concerns at all. So, um, as you know, we have a multi-boutique model, so we have a variety of, of different investment styles from um, the equity side, growth, value, core. We've got fundamental, we've got quantitative. And so, at any particular time, a, a style could be out of favor, uh, nothing independent of, of the, um, you know, of the boutique in terms of applying their investment. We have typically over the years seen our percent of AUM and four- and five-star funds Kind of range between 40 and 60 percent. Right now we're at 47 percent, like basically the mid mid level. So uh, that's within our range. Um, I'd like to highlight two or three points, though, because it's, it's an important point. Um, first of all, take Blue Water. Blue Water is uh, just a consistent five-star performer across all their funds, and their and Morningstar funds, as you know, the ratings are a blended of three, five, and ten-year returns, and they're. Uh, most of them are their top decile in, in three, five, and ten years. Uh, their performance has been a little soft last few quarters because, again, their style is growth-oriented, quality-oriented. Uh, they, they also usually uh, avoid resources. And so, of course, it's come back now last month, last month or so. But uh, they'll bring in, uh, again, uh, over a billion in net mutual fund sales for us, collectively, Blue Water across their mutual funds, as they've not, now done last two or three years. So advisors just love them. They're just fantastic couple of months of uh, a quarter's rather soft performance, no problem at all. But, but you know, for, for them, as they get bigger and bigger, of course, they have a couple of quarters of softness that come through the, the short-term one-year numbers. Um, we have uh, 14, uh, our top funds are four and five star. And so, again, they consistently sell long-term performance across all the asset classes. What we'd like to point out, as I mentioned before, um, the, uh, we've, we've done very well also in our new funds. Now, as you know, those funds don't have any Morningstar stars because they're the last three-year track record. Uh, the green chip environmental was mentioned already. That's over 1.6 billion. It'll hit uh, three years in November. We expect a very high rating. Blue Water, Global Balance, well over 800 million. Uh, it'll hit three years in January. Expect a very high rating. Um, you know, our mid-cap, I mentioned uh, Phil Toller's mid-cap to complement its mid-cap U.S., selling very well. Only a year old, no ratings, right? So you can see that the the advisors really have confidence in our boutiques that have a sustainable four and five star. They're very confident in these funds that have no stars because they like the, the proposition and the process and the teams. And one more point, if I could, what I'm very proud of is, as you know, we at McKenzie pride ourselves in, in, in selling to the advisors from a solutions perspective, a portfolio construction perspective. A number of our funds that are three star sell, um, uh, our unconstrained bond, which just was uh, downgraded from four star, three star, arguably miscategorized in a high yield category. There's no category for it. it, it apparently, uh, it's being worked on to introduce a multi-sector global fixed income category, which that, that's where it should be in. But with high yield and uh, doing so well the last couple months, it's popped down to three. Sells just every day very, very well. Uh, has nice 
diversified portfolio and uh, down service protection. Monthly income, BOPS, it's four-star now, BOPS between two, three, four-star. It's outcome-oriented, uh, high div, high yield, uh, high income every month, down service protection, advisors love it, one of our top sellers this year. So I think, and Damon mentioned client reform, I think you'll see more and more of the advisors talking to us, the manufacturers, being more open to buying outcome-oriented mutual funds, irrespective of their stars, because they they optimize their portfolio construction. So, so no concerns at all. Our, our percentages right in the range of where they normally are. But I did want to highlight also the um, the new funds doing very well, as well as some of the outcome-oriented funds, irrespective of their star ratings, still selling strongly. Perfect. That's it for me. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, Damon, I wanted to go back to Jeff's question um, on, uh, on kind of transfers, and you talked about the non-registered side, but what about the registered side, uh, you know, when a client comes from another institution? Like, how, like what proportion of IG accounts are self-directed versus uh, held at an investors group, or like if, if, if you kind of tabulate that at all? Uh, just trying to get a sense on... Um, you know, those accounts coming in and, and, and kind of the same question as Jeff on the register side, um, you know, the ability to migrate it to, into IG products over time. Yeah, so I would, I would say that um, because of our, our, our focus on the mass affluent and the high net worth, naturally you're going to see the business gear a little bit more towards non-registered. Uh, because that is the, the pool that you're playing in. Those are the larger accounts in, in those areas. So I'd say that, um, that that's exactly what's happening with our business, that um, you know, a, a greater proportion of our, of our new business is coming from non-registered TFA, TFSA type of accounts versus registered. Registered still remains a, a big part, though. You know, we've, we've gone unbundled, so in terms of, of registered, it's all held in our nominee account, either in our, our IGAA account or our iProfile account, so it, it's completely self-directed. Um, obviously, it makes it, it, it easier to, to move registered money because you're not dealing with, uh, with, with tax, and with non-registered, you have to be more thoughtful. But at the end of the day, I think it's important that, that everyone really thinks in terms of, of non-registered. That's, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Even though you have to be more thoughtful and it does take longer time, it does bring greater opportunity. And that's one of the expertise that, we've, that we have at our firm is tax planning and, and tax optimization. Um, and that's why you, you, you see the results that you do in terms of our ability to, to, to sell uh, IGM product um, relative to, to the amount of money that's coming in. I think it, it, brings, it gives us a, a tremendous opportunity. Our advisors have bought in to you know, the, the value proposition of, of selling managed solutions that are well-constructed. It frees them up. They're not sacrificing on performance because of, of the great sub-advisors that, uh, that we have and, and all the efforts that we put towards portfolio construction. So you're seeing some, some significant progress in that area, and I would expect that to continue. Great. And, uh, and, and just on China AMC, the, uh, the, the net earnings have been exceptional over the past, uh, you know, I would call it since you've uh, made the investment, but more particularly over the last couple of years, up 45% year over year. What, what is it in that business, say, relative to an IGM that allows it to have enhanced earnings growth? I'm only asking just to get a sense on, Kind of the quarterly run rate, which is obviously tracking a lot higher than um, than, than what we're expecting. I yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. go ahead, Barry. No, no, Luke, please. I'll, I'll jump in afterwards, please. Oh, 
I was just going to say, yeah, in the domestic China management industry, they're experiencing very, very strong growth in net flows. We expect that to continue. As Barry said in the early part of the presentation, the expectation is for over 15% annual growth in that market, and it is expected to be over half of global flows in the asset management industry in the next 10 years. Much like in the Canadian market, there's a lot of offering leverage in that business. So as AUM grows, uh, you can expect revenue to grow uh, consistent with that, but earnings to, to be to be levered. And so when you look at the last three or four quarters, the growth in earnings that China MCs experience of about 30 to 50 percent, depending on the quarter, there's a there's a big runway in front of us for continued earnings growth from from these levels. And is, is there like fee compression headwinds like we like we see in North America, or or that's not the case yet because it's a more infant market. It's a competitive market. You can th you can think of it as being competitive with uh, with Canada and the U.S. in terms of, of retail, and I'd say much like our business here, the composition of the clientele it has an impact on the uh, on the overall overall earnings. And you can see from the slide Barry presented, that there's a very diversified uh, asset base there uh, in China MC, where, where they do have a big focus on retail, and you can see that long-term funds, but they also have a very vibrant in institutional business. So, so that that's going to kind of have the biggest impact on the weighted average fee rates in that market. And, and I, I would think of it as being very competitive and, and having margins across the segments very, very comparable to, uh, to, to Canada. Right. Yeah, I'll just add uh, to Luke's comments, because spot on. The, the, uh, I mean, it's getting to be a very big market, but, uh, you know, obviously, you know, <clears throat> second largest economy in the world. And, and the market is growing so fast. And yes, there are a lot of uh, foreign players going into China uh, because uh, the, the big players, because obviously, as Luke said, half the growth of the industry in the next few decades will emanate from China. But we just see, remain so um, pleased and confident that having a strong minority interest in a, a preeminent local player is the right strategy because, as Luke said, they're, they're multi-channel, not just retail, but institutional, online. They've got. They, they're, they're developing alternatives uh, offerings, China AMC. Uh, they're just a terrific firm, and it is really early days. I mean, there's one stat we, we were looking at, uh, all of us, um, in terms of what's the potential growth of this marketplace. No timeline, right? But if you look at more developed countries like Canada and U.S. and the ratio of the long-term mutual funds to their gross domestic product, GDP, in Canada and U.S., it's about 100%. And that kind of shows you that your long-term funds divided by GDP, about 100% ratio, right? It's, uh, it's 8%, 8.0% in China. So it has just uh, enormous runway as, as, again, as the local Chinese become more comfortable investing into long-term mutual funds. Um, the three-pillar system, which is just starting, their, their social security system is up and running but has a long ways to go. Their corporate uh, pension system is up and running but it's really early. And their third pillar, our RSP uh, pillar, just nascent. So the runway is enormous. Uh, obviously, Luke said a lot of players there, competitive, right? Should be. Why wouldn't it be? But uh, again, those local players, like as China AMC, we, fit, we feel have a really key competitive advantages for years to come over the, the new foreign players coming in. Good. And, uh, and just on the strategic investment side, if I kind of look at the quarter over quarter change, um, is it fair to say the, um, the uh, unallocated capital increase that doubled was mostly from the Wall Simple, um, your, your, your portion of the Wall Simple sale in Q2? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. That, that was the biggest part of the increase. 
Okay. And just lastly, I haven't seen it yet. On the NCIB, did you buy back any stock in the quarter or, or, or if anything, Q3 to date at all? Yeah, no, no, we didn't. No. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much. As a reminder, it is star one to ask a question. The next question is from Jamie Gloin from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, first question for, for Luke on the business development expenses. Just want to get a sense as to uh, uh, the cadence uh, as we approach that, uh, that guidance for the full year. I think it's pretty clear on that front. Just wondering if uh, it seems like there was a bigger accrual this quarter. Does that suggest there's a step down next quarter or is it more of a straight line approach to, uh, uh, to that full year guidance? Yeah, great, great question, Jamie. So, so you're right. There was a catch up in Q2. And, and so right now we've given the full year um, expense if, if things track towards $5 billion. And, and obviously if we uh, assess in Q3 and, the, and there is some stalling of sales, we could, uh, we could change the accrual the other way um, to, to, to get something that, you know, that reflects the, the expectation at that time. So that, but that's how you should think about it is we actually did have a, a catch up because of the great momentum McKinsey had in Q2. And, and you can see that extra $5 million that came in and then we're going to track towards the full year number for the remainder of the year, assuming we trend towards $5 billion. Okay, got it. Uh, and then uh, second question uh, for James or, or Damon, I guess. Um, as, uh, as we see the release uh, from the federal government on, uh, on open banking, uh, and I'm thinking about your fintech platforms as well as some of the other financial planning uh, services that uh, IG Wealth is providing. Uh, do you have any comments, any initial views on uh, on how that can uh, support, enhance, drive uh, further growth for the business? Well, I would, um, Janie, I would just say in respect of that, that we, um, you know, we participate very, very actively, um, as you know, in the in the broader uh, power ecosystem of uh, of fintech. And when you look at the, the full range of companies that are in that ecosystem and the number of companies that we have an opportunity to, uh, to partner with uh, and indeed have indirect ownership uh, interest in, uh, I, I can say that uh, we, will, we will absolutely participate in the uh, evolution uh, of this industry. We'll participate uh, in a way that benefits our shareholders, but, but as importantly or more importantly, uh, will participate in a way that uh, that benefits uh, our clients, and I think um, you know we're seeing that in our current relationship with with Well Simple. We see it in our current relationship with uh, with Conquest, and uh, frankly, we're in discussions with uh, with uh, other companies in that ecosystem. And you know, in the fullness of time, we view all of that as being quite shareholder uh, and client friendly. Okay, thanks. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Keith Potter for any closing remarks. Yeah, thank you for uh, joining us on the call. Uh, we know it's uh, one of the busiest days of the year. Uh, we hope you enjoy the upcoming uh, weekend and uh, the remaining days of summer. And with that, uh, we'll close out the call. Thanks, everybody. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.